I've been uh, very, I think about Mother's Day and I said that earlier, Happy Mother's Day. I've been very blessed in my life and my family. Uh, my parents are not here today. They normally are, but they're, they're on their way. They're actually in Texas, I think now, but uh, with, with a very godly mother and father that loved uh, more than anything else to, to be raised and brought up in a family that made much of Jesus from the time I can remember. I don't remember a time when that was not the case, and that was a great blessing. But uh, through those years of, of having very uh, say godly parents that are seeking to honor the Lord, there were times when they would uh, tell us things and, and call us to things that maybe we didn't agree with, especially in, in teenage years. Uh, I remember very vividly being a freshman in high school, just finishing my freshman year, and we moved and we were moving just another town, maybe 40 minutes away. And when we moved, uh, my brother and I were really big into basketball. We were really excited. We're moving. We're actually moving to a town where the, the public school was bigger than the town we lived in before. So sports, we're thinking, yes, this is good. That's a good thing. And uh, we got there and we moved. And I remember my dad calling us into his room and telling us that we were now going to go to a Christian school that was 45 minutes from our house. And we were so upset, both of us. We were really upset. And I don't know that it was, it wasn't a, a upset with the idea of going to a Christian school. We were upset about sports. I mean, that was our narrow focus was like, well, sports won't be as good there as they would have been here. And so that's the way we were thinking about it. But I remember my parents saying, no, we're going to do this. And so uh, I ended up going to a Christian school for three years from my sophomore through senior year in high school. And it probably took until three-fourths of the way through my senior year to probably really appreciate that. And uh, I enjoyed the time at the school, was glad I ended up going there, uh, had wonderful godly teachers, very good academics, a lot of good things that were there. Uh, but, but as I think back on those times, what probably influenced me more than anything else in those three years were two teachers in particular. And they're both uh, they both were basketball coaches and teachers, uh, ended up working for both of them at different times. Uh, Mr. Vanderbond and Mr. Nair, uh, the, the two guys, they're both, it was funny because they're both 6'5 and really skinny and kind of, you know, they look kind of similar, same, same type. But what happened is as is, is wonderful as they were as teachers, and they were both very good teachers, and they loved their students, and everybody loved their classes and loved to be around them and those things. But what I took away and what had such an impact on me was I got to work with them. Uh, I got to spend a lot of time with them in basketball practice. I got to spend a lot of time in their homes. And what I started to see was men who spoke about Jesus, but then they lived it. And what I saw was the way they loved their families, the way they loved their wives, the way they loved their children. What they were saying in front of a class at school was the same thing they lived. And you started to see that as you walked with them and you spent time with them. And so I think back on those times and what a profound influence that was. And it wasn't so much what they were even saying. Uh, what, you know, science class, I was terrible at science. I don't even remember the things they were teaching in terms of science, but I remember the way they lived. And I remember what they showed. And so I was thinking about that this week, thinking back over those times in those years. And it kept coming to mind as I read Titus chapter 2. And just seeing uh, someone who lives out what they say they believe. And what an impact that has and the way that encourages and the way that instructs that that you had guys that that were joyful in the way they did their work. They were quick to call you on things that weren't quite right in a loving, correcting way. But then then they would also model it. And so as we go back to Titus today, Titus chapter two, we're going to see this very idea with what Paul is writing to Titus. We said now this is the third week we're in Titus. If you weren't here they didn't remember, it's a good re- reminder. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing a letter to Titus, who is a 
pastor, a young pastor in a church in Crete, on the island of Crete. And Crete is a mess. It's a new church with new believers, but they've got all kinds of stuff swirling around there. And it's a mess. And so what we talked about uh, the last couple of weeks is the first week we talked about what Paul wants to see for them, them growing in a knowledge of the Lord and, and lives that accord with that. And then he talks about how to begin to attack that, what we looked at last week, where he says, go and appoint elders, find godly men to teach and help you teach sound doctrine. And then this week, as we move into chapter two, he begins to talk about kind of putting this into practice among the body and what this looks like and how to live this out. You could really say two one is a good uh, summary statement of, of where we're going when he says teach what accords with sound doctrine. Uh, show lives that reflect what you believe. And so that's what I want us to look at. That's why those guys came up in my mind in high school, that that's what they were doing. And that's what they were showing and that's what they were teaching. And not just by words, but by their lives. And so that's where we're going in Titus chapter 2. And so let me pray for us before we look at it. And then we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 together. Lord, we pray that as we open your word, that your spirit would move In this place that you would lead and you would guide us, that you would teach us what you want us to see, that you would open the eyes of our heart and apply these deep truths to it. I pray that you would help us to see clearly uh, our our need for one another and most importantly, our need for you and what you've done for us. And that we would just uh, see that clearly and we would also obey and lead lives that point to what we believe. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And so this is the way we're going to go at this pretty straightforward this morning. But what are we to do? How are we to do it? And why? So what, how and why? What are we to do? How do we do it? And why? And so that's the way I want to look at it, because he's remember, this is a very practical letter. Uh, There's a very specific context to Crete where it's kind of a mess of a church. But it's also everything he says is uh, we can apply to the church today. We need to hear this just as much as the church in Crete did. And so. We're going to think about what are we to do, how do we do it, and why. And so just the what are we to do, and I've already alluded to this, but it's right there in chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, right, writing to Titus, but as for you, Titus, teach what, what accords with sound doctrine. And so the picture that we get and what Paul's saying and what we start to, to see is, is he's just built this case on the first chapter about how you need men who understand, hold fast to the word, can teach sound doctrine, can refute bad teachings that were coming into the church. And so he kind of hit heavy on the part of the knowledge part and making sure people understand what Scripture says and why that's important and knowing that. And then all of a sudden he turns and he says, and teach with what accords with sound doctrine. Teach lives, model, point to ways of living that go with what you say you believe. And so when we talk about what are we to do, the picture that we're looking at here is we're to live lives that reflect what we believe. We're to walk the walk, as we say, and not just talk about it, but actually walk that out. It goes perfectly when you think about it with Jesus's uh, picture of of go make disciples, the Great Commission. We say this often here, the Great Commission, the, the last thing Jesus says before he ascends into heaven is go make disciples of all nations. And he says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Right? He doesn't say, go teach them so they have a head knowledge and that's it. He says, you teach them to obey. It's both. It's word and deed. God works through his word and he teaches us through the proclamation of his word and learning it, but then we're supposed to live it. And so we've said that the last couple of weeks. You know, Titus is a very good picture of discipleship and what it looks like. 
And when we say discipleship, I want to be clear on this. I'll say this a bunch, probably a lot more even the next few weeks in Titus. But discipleship simply means bringing every area of our life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So being obedient to Jesus in everything. And so that's a lifelong process of doing that and working through that. And so what, what uh, Paul says to Titus here is teach that which accords with sound doctrine. Your lives should look like what you say you believe. It should have an effect on the way you live. And so he starts to, to say that and then he addresses all these different segments in the church. And so he's going to walk through and he's going to address all he's going to address older men and then older women and then younger women and younger men. And he's going to talk about bond servants, which your your uh, translation might say slaves. And we'll talk about why the Bible is not affirming slavery the way some people say it does, because that's not what it's saying. And I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. If you have that question, we'll talk about that. But he addresses all these different things and talks about what it looks like to live this out, to live lives that accord with sound doctrine. But as we do that, and as we're going to look at these different things, he says that the different groups of people in the church, I want to be real careful when we do that. Our hearts are so deceitful that when we start to look at lists of things of this is what it looks like to live lives that accord with sound doctrine, we can kind of make a checklist. Like if I do these things, God will be pleased with me. Right? That this is how I get saved. This is how God accepts me. And so we've got to be careful when we start to look at lists like this. There are things that God tells us to do. There are things that we're called to do to be obedient, but we have to be very careful that we don't slip into saying this is how you get saved, because that's what our heart wants to do. And the reason our heart wants to do that is we want to make it all about us and what we do instead of what God has done. That's, that's what sinful is, making it about us instead of about God. And so I want to be real careful when we say that uh, before we look at those things, just real briefly, look at the very end of this chapter. I'm going to skip ahead and we'll talk about this next week. And so I'm just going to touch on this real, real briefly. But look at verse 14. He says, who gave himself? He's talking about Jesus in the context there. And I'm jumping right into the middle. I hate to do that. But we're going to come back to this next week and work through all those verses. But he says, who gave himself? Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It says something similar in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God appearing that he's talking about is Jesus. That's what he's talking about in context there. Bringing salvation for all people. And then it says training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. So I want you to get the order at which Paul says in both of those verses. And this is so important. And we say this every week, but we have to say it because our hearts need to hear it. You are not saved by what you do, but what Jesus has done for you and nothing else. And so he says he's appeared and he himself has redeemed us, bought us with a price, which was his perfect life and his atoning death. And then the resurrection proves that to be the case. And so you are redeemed. That means bought, brought back from your sin to relationship with God because of what Jesus does for you and nothing else. But when that happens, you are now his and the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you and he begins to do a work in you. And then you begin to, he begins to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. Get the order. You are saved by faith alone and what Christ does for you. He gives you a new life in the spirit and then he begins to make you into his image. And then you begin to want to do works and seek to do good works. That's why Paul can say this is what it looks like to live lives that are in accord with sound doctrine. 
And so there are commands that we're supposed to obey and seek to live, but they don't save you. You start to want to do those and you start to do those things because you're saved because of what Jesus has done. Right? Just so we're clear. That's the heart of the gospel, but that's the way it works. Yes, we're to be doing good works, but it's in response to being saved, not to get us saved. I don't know how other to say it more clearly than that. But that's just there before we look at what he tells us to look like. Because we can so easily slip into that. So look at what he specifically says as he addresses these different areas of, of the population of the church, which would be the same here today. And so look at what he says there in verse two. Older men are to be sober minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. And so he says older men, as you grow up in your faith and as you begin to mature and as you get older, this is what it should look like. You should be dignified and you should be self-controlled and you should be steadfast. He even tells them you should be sober minded, which let me remind you who he's writing to. Because in the very next verse, he'll switch to older women and he'll say older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slave to much wine. Right? And so he says it to the older men and the older women. Don't get drunk. Right? Don't be drunkards. Don't be just overindulging all the time in alcohol. He says, don't do that. And I, and I want you to remember who he's writing to. He's literally writing to a bunch of Cretans. That's, that's what they were known for. That's where we get that term. Cretan, if you've ever heard that before, someone who's really rough around the edges. This, it's people from Crete. That's what they were like. And so when Paul says, don't do these things, it's because they were doing these things a lot. He says, it shouldn't look this way as you mature in your faith. And so he tells them that this is what it should look like for a godly older man. He should be uh, self-controlled and dignified. And then he says older women who should be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. I want you to just think about that one slanders there. We always want to apply the gospel and how that then informs the way we live. Slander is talking bad about someone else. Right? We could throw in gossip with that. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Right. Well, when we start to talk that way and we start to uh, have conversations like that, and that's the way we're going about our lives, what we're really doing, I, I would dare to say, I don't have strong statistics to back this up. But I'm just going to throw this out. I'd say 90% of the time you're saying bad about other people to make you feel better about yourself. That's usually the way it works. Did you hear what so-and-so did? And it's kind of the connotation is I would never do that. But that person did that, right? That's what we do. We slander and we gossip and we talk that way. And I just want to show you clearly that that is a misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ that leads to that. And so when we grow up in our faith and sound doctrine that you are saved by faith alone and grace alone, by Christ alone, that cuts off looking down on other people. Because when you understand that you're saved only by what Jesus does, uh, you know, Ephesians 2. You were once a child of wrath and you were following all your sinful ways and then but God brought you out and brought you to life and he saved you. And if you understand that, you don't walk around going, hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? You don't need to try to make yourself feel better by looking down on other people because you know you're completely and totally accepted by God because of Christ and you don't have to do that. You understand how those go together. That's just one example. But as we grow in the doctrines of grace, as we see clearly who God is and the way he's revealed himself in Jesus, it begins to cut off those things. And so Paul can say, older women, don't be slanderers. 
is you grow in sound doctrine and you live lives that accord with that. That's not what it's going to look like. And so he starts to show us practical ways. The same thing with indulging in uh, telling the men to be sober minded and the women not to take too much wine. Those are very self-indulgent things. Living in excess and being self-indulgent in those ways. Instead of seeing your life as purchased by Christ and it's no longer mine but His, you make it all about you and what I want and what I feel like right now. That's the way we do. But when the gospel comes in and begins to change us, it starts to cut those things off. And so there's a direct correlation in your doctrine, sound doctrine and living lives that accord with it. And so he says that to, to older men and older women. But then he talks to younger women. Look in verse, uh, verse 4. And so he says, they, talking about the older women, are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, and the word of God may not be Reviled, And so you look at this picture of what he, he starts to talk about when he says younger women. And he says, love your husbands and love your family and take care of what's right in front of you. And so he starts to encourage them. I, I read this week, and this is the only place where it explicitly says uh, to, to younger women, love your husbands. And one of the commentators said, that's probably because they're Cretans and that's not going on. And Paul's got to say something as simple as, hey, why do you need to love your husbands? But it's also a a high calling of a wife to love and care for her husband. You see that in Ephesians 5. That God says, I've set it up this way and you have this opportunity to come alongside and to love and encourage your husband. And so he starts to paint this picture of what this looks like, of of caring for your family and loving your husband and loving your children and being self-controlled and pure and looking at those things. I wish I could say I planned it. It's great to have those verses on Mother's Day, right? That's a beautiful picture of what a godly mother looks like. She loves her husband well, and she loves her children well, and she she takes care of her home, and she does these things that he calls us to. And what Paul tells us about of what it looks like to live out a doctrine in your life as a young woman, a young mother or a young wife. And so you see that picture. Now, I have to at least address this just briefly because oftentimes this will become an area of contention in this passage where it says uh, a woman is to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. I'm not going to take on the submissive to their own husbands today. We've talked about that. We even talked about that last week and the way God has, has made us to have different areas where men take a lead and women submit to their husbands. And that's a beautiful picture, even in Christ submits to the Father. Talked about that just last week, and so I'm going to leave that. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you about biblically what that picture looks like. But what I will address just briefly here as we're looking at that is people will say, it says here, working at home. And some people will take this verse, and they'll grab that one verse, and it says, that then means that women can't work outside of the home because of that verse. I don't know if you've heard that before. Commonly, this verse will get used in that way. I think it is a picture here of pointing to caring for your family and your husband and your children and making sure your home is your your domain and that God has given this as your first place of importance in your life. And having that be in that way, it doesn't mean that you can't work outside of the home ever. In fact, I would say when you read Proverbs 31 of a virtuous woman, she's doing all kinds of things. Right. She's doing a lot of things in a lot of different ways. And so I'm kind of sitting on the fence with this, to be honest. I want to affirm the idea of of a woman taking her home and making that a primary thing in her life is a good and and wonderful and biblical picture that's there. 
that your children are important and your husband is important and your home is important. But also, it doesn't mean that that's a hard restriction. And there's a lot of things socially, context that go into that. And so that may sound like a total cop out on both sides of that. We can talk about that more. more. Uh, but I want to say when we take verses and we pull them out of context and we make them to be a, a blanket prohibition, we get this gets a little iffy in Scripture because we want to be careful that we're taking all of what Scripture says. And I would include that with, with Proverbs 31. And so... Younger woman, this is what it looks like. You're, you're loving your family well. You're loving your husband well. Then look at what he says about younger men, because he switches to younger men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Younger men, you get one verse. Be self-controlled. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like, uh, young guys, don't be idiots. Right? Just don't, don't be crazy and don't do, be self-controlled. But, but when you really think about it, I say that kind of joking, but when you think about a picture of what it looks like to be self-controlled, that covers a lot of things. Paul just said a lot with one word there of being self-controlled, of, of taking care of what you're supposed to do and doing the things that God told you and having discipline in how you do them. Uh, you know, there's, there's scary t- statistics today of like men 30 and under spend like four hours a day playing video games, right? I think being self-controlled kind of cuts that off in different ways. Like if you're spending all day doing whatever it is, I'm not picking on video games, but whatever you're doing, there's not a lot of self-control in that. And so he tells us, young men be self-controlled. And then then he moves to the last uh, kind of group here. It says bond servants in verse 9. Your Bible, depending on what version you're reading, might say slaves. And so this is one of those verses that becomes kind of controversial because people will say, well, what does that mean? And, and they'll talk about, it. well, just, just listen to what he says. Bond servants are being submissive to their own masters. Again, servants, masters, we hear that and we, uh, it makes us kind of bow up and go, that's, that's horrible. But listen to what he says. He says they're to be uh, submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. But so context-wise, bond servant, slave in Paul's day is not forced slavery like we often get in our minds when we hear that. And so when we hear master and slave, we think about forced slavery, horrible conditions, awful things. Bond servants in Paul's day was someone who entered into an agreement to basically work as a slave for somebody else. And what we mean by slave is you're going to give me a job and I'm going to work and I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. And you're going to give me a place to live and you're going to pay me. And we're going to agree to that for a certain amount of time. Sounds kind of like a job. That's, that's really a, a good correlation is I'm agreeing to work for you and you're going to pay me. And we're making this agreement together. But the way it worked is you would agree for a certain amount of time and then you were bound to that. It's like signing a contract. And so what you, when you put it into those terms and then you hear what Paul says, he says, bond servants are be submissive to their masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So basically he says, if you have a job, whether you like it or not, uh, do it well, work hard, don't steal, do what your boss tells you, right? That's good advice for us today, whatever your job is. Maybe you work a job right now that you really don't like. And, and remember what we're doing here, what he's after is, is that is a, a faith that accords with sound doctrine that looks like what you say you believe. And so if we believe God's sovereign and he's good and he's given us work and all those things, then we're going to do those things to the best of our ability. And we're not going to steal and we're not going to do the other things that God tells us to do. And so when you look at all those together, older men, 
older women, younger men, younger women, bond servants, all that. I mean, everything that Paul's saying here is that we're to live lives that reflect what we believe. When you say, and now God has come into your life and he's begun to know that you're supposed to live in a certain way that's in accord with what you say you believe. And so that's the what uh, when we talk about what are we to do and what is he trying to get the church in Crete to do? That's the answer. Live lives that are in accord with what we believe. So then the second thing is, how do we begin to do this? And we talked about this a little bit last week because these go together. Obviously, chapter one and chapter two go together. It's all one letter. There were no chapters when he wrote the letter. And so this just all goes together. Remember, last week we talked about how he says, appoint elders, godly men who are going to teach and correct and sound doctrine and be able to point out when there's bad doctrines and bad things happening. And so that's part of it. That's part of how we get this head knowledge and we start to see it and we start to understand. Last week we talked about giving instruction and sound doctrine. Instruction really means walking with. Uh, We also talked about how uh, the, the role of an elder or a pastor or a shepherd in the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's from Ephesians 4. If you've heard that, we're to be helping you to walk so that you can help other people to do it as well. And so when you start to ask, well, what does this look like? How do we grow in being obedient to what we say we believe and then making it actual in our lives? You get some hints here that go exactly with those other pictures that you see in Ephesians 4. It's also in 1 Corinthians 12 where it says God has given us all different gifts for the building up of the body. We all are gifted in different ways to help build up one another. You see the same thing here. So when you take all of what Scripture says and then you put it together with what Titus says here, or Paul says to Titus here in chapter 2, look at what he says in verse 4. He's just talked to the older women and what that looks like. And then he says at the end of verse 3, they are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. And he goes through the list. And he says, so, so older women, as you're growing in this, you go find some younger ladies that need some help and you begin to pour into them. And you begin to help them walk this out in their life and you train them and you teach them and you show them and you share your experience. Uh, By the way, a lot of times sharing our experience, if you go, man, I don't know how to do it. I'm not a lot of sharing our experiences. This is where I blew it. And so don't do what I did. Right. That's a lot of it that we learn as we go. And so you may go, well, I don't know how to help. Well, yeah, you do. Right. If you've made any mistakes, you know how to help other younger believers. You go, hey, just don't do what I did. Right. And so we help one another. You see that. But then look at what he says in verse seven. Right? He talks to the to the younger men and then he turns back to Titus and he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. Right. He says to Titus, do what you're preaching, then do it and let them see it. Model it in your life and walk it out as you're saying it. Don't just stand up and preach and then say, see you later. And that's it. That's the equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. That's where it's, uh, you see it in Jesus and the way he worked and the way he made disciples. What did he say? The first thing he says to the disciples is, come follow me. He doesn't say, meet me here at 1030 on Sunday morning and I'll give you a teaching and then we'll do it again next week. He says, come follow me and we'll, you'll walk with me and we'll look at what this looks like as we go. And so it's not just teaching and preaching, although it is that. It's modeling it as we go and helping one another in the in that way. And we had it right way back a uh, hundred years ago. Uh, uh, apprenticeships. Right? That's the way you learned your job. Instead of going to school for years and years and years and then going and getting a job and then trying to figure out what you would go and you'd work with someone and they would teach you and you would learn as you go. It's a great picture. 
uh, I was fortunate to, to come, uh, my undergraduate was in architecture. And so I worked in architecture for a long time. I went to school for four years to learn a lot, and I learned a lot, a lot of good things in my time in school. Uh, I learned a whole bunch of things, and then I went and I worked for a wonderful, godly man that cared enough to say, come with me and let me show you this and let me teach you this. I learned way more in two years working with him than I did in four years of school. And I went to the best possible school. I went to Texas A&M, the best school that you can go to. And I still learned more in the two years. after. I mean, it would make sense that you would learn more in the two years, like if you went to Texas. It would make sense because you went to Texas. And so you got to make up for that. And, but if you went to A&M, you still learn more. That's just proof. That, that you learn more in the apprenticeship. But you really do because you have theoretical knowledge and you know a lot of things, but then you go out in the real world and it's like, well, that doesn't work, right? There would be guys that would tell, well, this guy I worked for would say, go talk to the roofer, the guy that's been framing roofs for 20 years, go ask him about it because he's going to know way more than you do. And you're like, what? I went to school. And he's, you know, and he's like, he knows all, he knows every single way to do this. Go talk to him. And you would. You'd learn so much more as you go. And so you see that picture here as Paul says to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. He says, show it as you're going. And so when we say, what is he after? He's telling us to live lives that reflect what you believe. And then he says, and the how you're going to do this is, yes, you're going to teach sound doctrine. And yes, you're going to refute bad doctrine. And then you're going to model what it looks like. You're going to spend time together and you're going to live it out together. And as you go, you're going to correct and say, oh, wait a second. And then we're going to apply what we're knowing about who God is to our lives as we go. And so that's the picture of what it looks like. So we, we want to live lives that reflect him and we need to, one another to help one another. We need uh, believers who are ahead of us to go, come with me. Let me show you. Let me share with you. Let me walk with you in this. And so I just ask as we move to the why this is so important before we do, who is that in your life? Who are you walking with that you're helping them to walk with Jesus? Because if you are seeking to be a Christian, if you're seeking to be a disciple of Jesus, becoming obedient to Jesus in every area of your life, Jesus says, go make disciples. And so the question is, who is that? Who in your life are you helping to walk to be more obedient to Jesus? And it depends, you know, where you are in your life. It may be your kids or your grandkids or, or people you work with or your neighbors or all of the above. You know, sometimes people go, uh, Mother's Day, young mother. Man, I don't have time. I'm swallowed up with my kids. Well, guess what? You have built-in disciples in your kids. They're right there. They watch you every day, all day, all the time. God's put them in different seasons. It's going to be different things. And so right now, your season may be the disciples you're making or your children. And that is a good and wonderful thing. That's even what he says here about make sure you're taking care of your husband and your children and you're doing what God's put right in front of you. And so just to think about that, what does that look like? Who are you helping to walk to be more obedient to Jesus in your life? And then another question I would ask too is, is who is helping you? Who in your life is it? Two steps ahead of you that's helping call you to be more obedient. Because the picture all through scripture is both. Right? You're always having somebody who's walking ahead of you, kind of with you, and someone who's you're kind of helping along. And hopefully we've got some people that are kind of in the same spot too, and all of that together. But that's the biblical picture. And so the last question here, the last part, and we'll end with this, is the why this is so important. And we often talk about 
Uh, catechism questions that we put in the bulletin each week. Those are just simple, short statements that help us summarize great big truths of Scripture. I personally didn't grow up learning catechism questions. Uh, Presbyterian Church does that a lot. Maybe different denominations you did or you didn't do that. Uh, I kind of came to that later in life, and I love them. I love that these great big huge truths are in simple statements that can just help me say it so clearly and articulate it. But we often say the very first, like the Westminster Confession, what is the chief end of man? That we say it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Right? Our sinfulness, we want to make it all about us, but the truth is it's all about God. And so the biggest picture in our life is we are to be glorifying God. That is to be pointing people to who God is. And so when we think about how, uh, what we're to be doing, we're to be living lives that point to our position, who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. And we're to be helping one another to do that. And so then the question becomes, why is that so important? And he says right there in verse 10, and he's talking about bond servants, but it would apply to everything he's just said. In verse 10, he says, you're not to be pilfering, not stealing, but showing all good faith. And then listen to what he says, so that... In everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. He says, you do this, the why that you seek to live lives that are in accord with what you believe. And the reason you seek to help one another to do it is so that we can make much of Jesus. We get this calling of God comes and saves us by no doing of our own sinful people that are running from him. And he pulls us out and he brings us to life. And he gives us eternal life. He gives us his spirit. He makes us new. He begins to regenerate it. And he says, now you get to go lives that point to what I've done for you. What a great and high calling that we have. And so we say, well, why do we seek to do this? It's so that people can see how good our God is. It's the greatest uh, apologetic that the church has today is the way we love each other. The way that we care for one another, the way that we care for people, the way that we live lives of faithfulness. Right? Jesus would say, they'll know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. They'll know that you're following me by the way that you care for one another. And it's a beautiful picture that God invites us into that and allows us to be part of it. And so when we talk about why it's right there that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Think about that, just even that term, adorn. Right? Put on. You have to wear what Jesus has done for you. And so when you think about like this, this bond servant, you have a stinky job. I know some of you do. I've heard some of you talk about it. We've had those. We've prayed about it. <laughs> the job's hard and it's not good and it's not what I want. Well, you have an opportunity to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in the way you go about your job. Right? Think about that. Even though it stinks, you can still be joyful because you are God's and he has, he has chosen you and he's got you and he loves you and you're completely loved in him. And so we have opportunities that God allows us to show that in our lives and we need one another to help each other in doing that. And so that's the picture of what it looks like as a body. I love this letter written to a little messed up church in Crete 2000 years ago and it's just as relevant for us. It's God's living and active word that's, that's written just as much for us as it is for them. And so when we think about this big picture here, we'll just summarize the whole thing. What are we to do? We live lives that, that show what we believe. And the way we do that is we help one another and we model it and we teach and we encourage one another and we do all of it that we can make much of Jesus. 
That is a wonderful and high calling that we get to be a part of. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the, this letter uh, of Paul to Titus. I thank you that you inspired it, that you've kept it, that you've brought it uh, down through the ages for us to read and study and to see you more clearly. We thank you that you do love us, that you care for us. Uh, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that these things are all just an overflow of the position that we have in Christ. And we thank you for that. I pray that you would help us to be ever more faithful, ever more obedient to you in every area of our lives and that we would seek to help one another to do that all for your glory and honor. We pray it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.